She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files adjacent podcast. Millennium, season one. Episode three, Dead Letters. This episode was written by Glenn Morgan and James Wong. They will write 15 episodes of Millennium, three in season one and 12 in season two. It was directed by Thomas J. Wright. This is the first of eight Millennium episodes this writing and directing team will handle, two in season one and six in season two. Yeah, Wright will actually direct 26 episodes of Millennium, five in season one, 10 in season two, and 11 in season three. So he's directing more than a third of the episodes. He's actually had a pretty interesting career too. So he worked with Morgan and Wong directing six episodes of Space Above and Beyond, the show they were on when they left X-Files and then before they came to Millennium. He had previously directed several episodes of over 20 different series. He will direct three episodes of the X-Files in season seven. Nice. And then he went on to direct CSI, Crime Scene Investigation, Smallville, Supernatural, a bunch of other stuff as well. But way before all of that, before he was a director, he actually did production art. And from 1969 to 1973, he painted all of the gallery paintings for Rod Serling's horror anthology, Night Gallery. He also did production art for films like Andromeda Strain in 1971, Jaws in 1975, Apocalypse Now in 1979, and Rocky II also in 1979. And then he did second unit director work on several films, including Beverly Hills Cop 1984 and Howard the Duck in 1986 as he transitioned from being like a production artist to being a director. So had a pretty interesting career. The Night Gallery thing blew my mind to just randomly find out like, oh, yeah. And by the way, he painted all the stuff from Night Gallery. So nice. that was kind of weird. Yeah. This episode was filmed on location in British Columbia, Canada, and it originally aired on Friday, November 8th, 1996 at 9 p.m. In it, Frank Black heads to Portland, Oregon to assist on a serial killer case and partners with a detective whom the Millennium Group is considering as a possible recruit. Yeah, probably not a good idea because the PPB is garbage. So anyway. I'm sure it was probably still garbage in 1996. I didn't move here till 2003, but I can read. So I know it's been not great. (laughs) Anyway, personal bias aside, we open with a flash of white. because That's our standard thing now, right? When we open, we have flashes of white. And then when we leave scenes, we have fades to black. So we'll probably hit all those this episode. And then in the future, we'll probably skip the flashes to white and fades to black just because it's repetitive to say it all the time. Yeah, and you know what's happening. We told you. You can just trust that it's there. (laughs) Yeah. So we get the flash of white, and then from behind, we see someone sitting at a desk, and the room is really dark, and the only light is coming from a lamp on the desk, and they're looking like through a microscope and doing something, and then we fade to black. And then we see Jordan, and she's laughing, and she's dressed as a fairy princess, And several other girls are dressed in various little girl costume things. Like there's a princess and there's someone dressed like maybe Cleopatra, someone dressed as a traveler, someone dressed as a genie, and then someone as a cowgirl. And they're all running around and there's like a party table outside the black yard and pop goes the weasel is playing. 
and they're running around in circles and Catherine's there too. And then the music stops and Catherine looks worried and she's like, where's Jordan? And then she says that repeatedly, like, where's Jordan? Where's Jordan? And every time she sounds more urgent and fearful. And then we see Jordan is like right there and Jordan looks kind of confused, like I'm right here. And then Catherine steps away and behind her is a party clown, but he's a creepy party clown. All his face makeup is just black and white and not nice looking at all. And then we see Jordan walking through the house in the dark in her pajamas. And she sees her dad coming down a weird set of metal spiral stairs in the middle of their house. And she's like, daddy, but he doesn't hear it. He just keeps coming down. What we then see is this endless set of spiral stairs, like in this black void. So like just nonstop. And then there's a creepy laughter and Jordan turns and she sees the clown is sticking through the ceiling, like upside down. And he's tapping his fingernails on the ceiling, but his head is upside down so that it's actually right side up to like us and Jordan. But obviously his body is sticking through the ceiling upside down. So his head is upside down because it's facing us. And he laughs and Jordan screams. And then Frank wakes up and he hears Jordan and he sees Jordan standing by the side of the bed. And she says that she had a bad dream. And then he like, you know, lifts up the covers and she climbs in the bed next to them and then Catherine wakes up and like all three of them are kind of like cuddling and Frank tells Jordan that everyone has bad dreams and then she asks why and then his beeper goes off weird so yeah I know Chris Carter didn't write Frank to be psychic but I'm gonna watch the show and I'm gonna find evidence that he is psychic that's my I have this conspiracy theory that he is actually psychic and maybe Chris Carter just doesn't know it I don't know but I also think maybe he passed that on to Jordan and maybe Jordan's a little psychic too yeah maybe yeah Yeah. so then the teaser keeps going because like you know his beeper goes off and he looks at it and we kind of see the beeper it just says 2000 which I think maybe means millennium group yeah I think so yeah 2000 millennium uh yeah so then we get a screen legend that says Portland, Oregon, 3.42 a.m. And this establishing shot is actually Portland. It's a view of the Hawthorne Bridge from the east side of the Willamette River looking towards downtown Portland on the west side. So in the image, I don't know, 1996, I mean, Hawthorne Bridge, everything really hasn't changed that much, but there's like lights on the bridge and then some of the buildings have lights too. It looks almost like some of the Christmas decorations the city would do. It's possible those were just lights they had on the bridge in 1996. I don't know. Later, we'll find out that this is probably not near the holiday season at all. So I'm not sure. But it actually is Portland. So cool. They got some like footage from Portland to use, Mm -hmm. which is nice. So then we jump cut from the Serene River to a dog. He's all rah, 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 like behind a chain link fence kind of thing. And then we get another screen legend that says Multnomah Clackamas County Animal Center number four. And again, I live in Portland. I'm not sure why Multnomah and Clackamas counties would share one, never mind four animal shelters. Multnomah County contains Portland, Gresham, and Hillsborough. It is the smallest county at 466 square miles, but is also the most populous county in Oregon, with just over about 800,000 estimated in 2019. Clackamas County is directly south of Multnomah County. It's much larger in area at 1,883 square miles, although it's nowhere near the largest county in Oregon. And it has a population of about 400,000 estimated in 2019. So again, I'm not sure why we would have a cross-county animal shelter as someone who lives here, but I think they're just trying to name check places so you get that sense of like, we're in Oregon. 
anyway. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They'll do that again later too. They'll talk about some outer areas of the Portland general area that are actually like pretty far away. And they're still like, it's in Portland, like it's a neighborhood of Portland, which Portland does that thing where they name neighborhoods in Portland. Mm -hmm. But like the things they'll use are actually like, it's 30 miles away from the city. So it's kind of strange. Anyway. Yeah. Back to the actual teaser. So Frank is walking down a row of kennels and the dogs are going nuts. And also there's a ferret in this <laughs> place and it's hissing. And then we see like police red and blue lights flashing from outside against the wall. And then Frank gets a flash, like, you know, those little flashes he gets. And one is like a letter Y and then there's an R and then what looks like an I and they're in all caps and they're possibly on fire or something. They're very bright. And the letters are black on like pipes or rods or something. Maybe like something in a kiln. Who knows? We'll, maybe we'll find out later. Anyway, so there's a police photographer and his flash goes off and Frank walks over and there are bloody white sheets covering things on the floor. And the detective says they left everything as they found it. But he does add they covered the victim, but the perpetrator covered his own fecal remains. So there's some victims and there's also some poop on the floor. Great. Anyway, it's obvious from the shape of the sheets that the body is not intact. Mm -hmm. Frank pulls back the sheet covering the victim's head and the entire face is covered in duct tape. Oh, weird. Yeah. The detective says the hair and fiber are going to be a nightmare because there's animal fur everywhere. They started dusting and then Frank interrupts and asks if they found a message. And the detective and the medical examiner kind of look at each other. And then Frank is like on the body, cut into the skin. And so the detective and the Emmy's like look at each other still. And then the detective kneels down and looks under one of the other sheets and then looks up at Frank and shakes his head like in the negative, like, nope. And then Frank sees the letters flash again, but this time in the order of R, Y, I. And then we fade to black and then we get the main titles. And this is the standard 45 second version that we saw last episode and that we assume is going to be the standard one. So, mm -hmm. and then we get an epigraph at the end of the credits, which says for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest for trouble comes. And that is from Job 3, 25, 26. And this particular version is from the new King James version. Okay. So. So we get that blast of white, which is our standard, like open or return from cue. And then we see this rundown little corner shop that's called Molly's Coffee Shop. Although it's missing an E in the coffee on the sign. <laughs> and then it says Seattle, Washington, 7 a.m. And inside, Frank Black seems to be the sole customer, and he's eating breakfast and writing on a napkin, and he's kind of trying to create words that start with R-I and end with Y. So he's doing like a early version of Wordle, where he's like sitting there and playing a word. Like he's trying to figure out what word was in his vision, and he only has those letters, so he's messing around. And he's crossed out irrevocably, ritually, and risky. Yeah, ritually is written twice and crossed out twice for some reason. I'm not sure why. Yeah. But. Maybe he was really hung up on it. it. has to be that word. And then he's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Well, when we come into the scene, he's writing the second ritually and then he crosses it out. And then underneath is the first one already crossed out. So it may have just been like they were practicing the scene. And then when they started back up, he wrote the same word again, possibly. I don't know. Yeah. So, so Jim Pinsiers comes in and he sits next to Frank. 
And he says there are those in the group who feel they should not take the case in Portland because they don't think this guy is going to kill again. And Frank's like, he will. And others think they should at least wait until he meets the Holmes criteria of serial killers, which is three separate kills separated by at least 30 days. And Frank says he won't wait a week, maybe 10 days. And Jim's like, well, with all the hundreds of cases that we have been asked to consult on, many with small law enforcement agencies, why should we send you to Portland? And Frank's like, he left a message. And Jim's like, there's no report of that. And Frank says that the killer is leaving a message. He just hasn't found it yet. So Jim's like, all right, Portland detectives will want the credit, but there's a guy that works with the Portland PD, which... We'll talk about that later, but no one would ever say Portland Police Department or Portland PD. So At least not in Portland, apparently. <laughs> yeah, not in Portland yet. Anyone who knows would not say it, yeah. But they're looking at this guy as a possible recruit. His name is Jim Horn. He has a background in behavioral forensics, and his work was directly responsible for apprehending the Highway 8 killer in San Diego. He works out of an office in downtown Portland. And Frank writes Y-I-R on a napkin, and he crosses it out. Then we see someone punching 7794 into a phone and they get the the number you dialed is incorrect kind of like recorded message thing. And he's like, how the hell could it be incorrect? It's my own number. And then the message keeps going on about like, if you want to contact customer service, dial one of So He does that and he's put on hold and then he curses because there's another recorded message about what the wait time is. And he's like, I've been waiting that long to just do this. So he like slams the phone down and then Frank enters his office. And the guy on the phone, we find out, is Jim Horn. So the guy that they were talking about. And Frank introduces himself, and they shake hands. And Horn welcomes him to Portland and says he's heard great things about Frank. And he offers Frank some coffee. And as he's handing Frank the coffee, he's like, I don't want to come off as a jerk, but I go by James now. And Frank is like, okay, James. And then Horn says, thanks. And then they just kind of stare at each other for a while. So. Yeah, I'm just, I don't. It just annoys me that they named him Jim because they already have a Jim. And like in real life, yes, there are going to be multiple people named Jim. That's a thing that happens. But like this is a TV show. You don't you have the option to name the character or something completely different. And like they just used Jim. So if like they had had Peter in the diner with Frank, it would have been one thing. And we don't even hear about Jim this episode. Okay, fine. But like we just talked to Jim. Jim mentions Jim's name. It's just like too much. And then they. Or maybe decided like, oh, we can't have two gyms. Let's have him call himself James and let's put that in the show. And I'm like, why just name him Alex or something or like (laughs) Steve or Rick? It doesn't need to be Jim. Like, I just I don't get it. It's one of those things that always just irritates me because I'm like, you don't need to do that. Well, what's funny is that the actor's name is also James. So, yeah. But I mean, again, (laughs) doesn't need to have the same name as the actor. That's why it's acting like it's just. Yeah, I know. It's just whatever. Yeah, Pull a different name yeah. out of a hat. Get a baby name book if you can't think of anything but Jim. Come on. Yeah. But anyway, so like I said, they were staring at each other. And then Horn is like, are you profiling me? And like, you got that profiling look in your eye. And Frank's like, no. He's just wondering what's wrong. Because he can tell. Because Horn is agitated. Uh-huh. He is yeah. not like he is. Honestly, he is never not agitated in this episode. So yeah. just spoiler. So then Horn apologizes. And he says he's going through a separation with his wife. And Frank is like, I'm sorry, I've never been separated, but I've been there, which is a little weird saying he's never been separated, but he's been there. But I think he means like, I know what it's like to be like, have things going on in your life that are like, you know, 
rough. Yeah, so, I think that's what he means. But yeah, it is yeah. weird for him to sit there and go, oh, I've never been through that, but I know what you mean. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then he notices that Horn has a kid because he sees a photo on the desk. And he's like, I have a kid too. And Horn says that that's his boy, TC. He just turned two. And then Horn says that Jim Pinsiers sent him what they had and that Frank thinks that it's an outside stressor causing the killer to kill and horn agrees and he thinks maybe it's marriage trouble which i'm like "Mm, and this is right here where i thought maybe he was gonna turn out to be the killer because he's so agitated and just like over the top i was like well maybe he's the killer and that's why yeah i don't know and just describing the problems he's going through is what the killer is going through which again we all project a little of what we're going through on other people sometimes but yeah i just thought that was funny yeah and frank is like he's not married he's never had sex and Horn kind of gets a look on his face and then asks how he got that information. And Frank says the murderer did create a charged psychological release in the killing, but that the only physiological release he could perform was defecation. And Horn says, well, he figured that was just signaling his hatred of women. And Frank says, no, he covered it up because he was embarrassed by it. So then Horn says he believes that the killer knew the victim and Frank asked him what led him to believe that. And Horn says that covering just the face. So not the whole head. So they didn't like, you know, cover the head like with a pillowcase. Oh my God, he just put duct tape over the face. And he says he needed to objectify her, but keep enough of his fixation available, right? So he could see it. And that he probably felt remorse. He's likely going to visit her grave. But he can't figure out the staging in the animal shelter. That's the part he can't figure out. And Frank says that will all be answered by his message. And Horn's like, there was no message. And Frank says they need to find it. And Horn's like, you know, I'm really respectful of what I heard about you, but I'm also doubtful about a lot of what I've heard about you. And Frank is like, that's all right. I've been there too. (laughs) Which I mean, that's honest and fine. There's something wrong with that, but yeah. So then we see the person at the desk that we saw at the beginning and we see that the person is wearing latex gloves and they're looking through a microscope and they set down this scalpel and they pick up a very fine tip pen and dip it in ink. And then they use the pen under the microscope and we fade to black. And then we cut to a dog barking behind the chain link fence again. And obviously it's at the animal shelter and the dog is in a cage And Horn is looking at a file with a photo of a smiling woman. The victim was Karen Anderson, age 21. She was a parking enforcement officer, and she had just moved up to Portland from Northern California. She had no boyfriend. She was attractive. Everyone said she was friendly. And her uniform was found in a sanitation transfer station down in Oregon City. So based on the blood on the uniform and the way it was cut, they can tell that he dismembered her while she was still wearing the uniform. Meanwhile, Frank is carefully examining every inch of the area where the body was found. He's probably looking for that message. Mm-hmm. And Horn is saying, like, he thinks that the victim probably gave the killer some kind of parking ticket or something. And that was the prior contact that they had before he killed her. And Frank just keeps looking. And Horn gets really pissed that Frank isn't paying attention to him and is, like, focused on finding this message. And he's like, do you have a problem with me? And then both their beepers go off and they both pull them out. And so something has happened because they're both getting called. Mm -hmm. So then we're at the U.S. Post Office in Portland, Oregon. Yeah, we have more than one, by the way, just (laughs) so you know. 
What are you guys? Fancy coastal elites with more than one post office for an entire they metropolitan They do some stuff later, area? too, where like Portland is like some podunk town, too. We'll get to that later. But yeah, yeah we have more than one <laughs> post office. Yeah. <laughs> so Frank and Horn walk through a mail processing area and Frank sees a sign that points to the dead letters office. And so he stops for a minute, but then they keep walking and Frank sees flashes of letters again. And then we see that the CSI guys are dusting the walls and all that stuff, like, you know, collecting evidence. And there's another dismembered body with parts sticking out from under black plastic. And the face is again covered in duct tape. Horn looks and then he turns and walks away. And Frank pulls on a set of gloves and he crouches next to the body and he lifts up the plastic. And then he puts on his glasses and he asks for tape. So one of the CSI guys hands him a strip of clear tape. He applies it to something that we can't quite see. And then he asks for acetate and he applies the tape to the acetate. And he pulls out this awesome magnifying glass and we see what looks like white twine that's scrolling along the lens with letters on it. And the letters are E and then T-O-M-O-R-R. And Frank realizes these are the letters he's been seeing. And he has a flash of other letters, which are H-A-I and then I-R. And he says, here today, gone tomorrow. <gasps> and then it's a commercial. The killer is leaving puns. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> no. oh it's a low rent Riddler. Great. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> I mean, on brand for Portland. But anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So then we come back and we get the bright white and then we're looking at two images with a legend underneath that shows a scale of thousandths of an inch. I'm assuming it's inch. It doesn't say, but it just says thousandths. And then we got the tick marks and each image is of a single strand of something that is about one five thousandths of an inch thick. Again, we're assuming inches. It could be centimeters. I'm not sure. One reads hair today and the other reads Gone tomorrow. So Frank nailed it. Boom. Horn says these messages are a big fuck you to the police. He doesn't say fuck you. He says F you or something like that. I forget what he says. He said he knew they searched for hair and fiber and that he is a police freak. He probably feels superior to them. Might even be an ex-cop. And then Horn is like, it seems like he's just totally grasping like at stream of conscious, like whatever pops into his head at this point. Frank is just sitting quietly. But I got the feeling that he was maybe thinking Horn was totally wrong. I don't know. Frank is always super calm, and he's always got a poker face. So mm -hmm. it's very hard to read him. Horn is going on about how the killer had to have prior contact. And then he starts talking about how he sees things when he looks at the victims. And again, Frank has this look that I took as like, bitch, please. Like, you see stuff? I see stuff. You don't see stuff. Anyway. <laughs> but again, total poker face. It may just mean like projecting. I don't really like Horn. I think that's the point of this episode, too, is you're not supposed to like Horn. Anyway, we do learn, though, that those things we see are actually gray hairs that the messages are written on. So they're actually hairs. So they're obviously not from the victim because they're gray. So then TC runs in, Horn's a little kid, and he's like, daddy, daddy, daddy. And then Horn looks up and they're in Horn's office and they have got crime scene photos all on the pegboard on the wall. So they're all bloody and gross looking. And he's like, get out. And then his wife is in the doorway and she was like, he couldn't wait to see you. And then you yell at him. And then she looks up 
and sees all the photos and she's like, you know how I feel about him ever seeing those kind of things. And she grabs TC and she walks out and Horner's like, that's why I told him to get out. And then he goes after her. And then Frank is just like <laughs> sitting there and then he gets up and he takes all the photos down as Horn and his wife are like arguing out in the hallway. Yeah. I mean, so. <laughs> you can definitely, I mean, I know that they're separating, but you can definitely tell there's a lot of good tension between them. So that was yeah. good, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So Horn picks up TC, like after his wife and everything are arguing, because she's like, well, maybe you just don't need him. He's like, no, I want to see him, but like I'm working right now. And she's like, well, maybe if you're working, maybe you don't need him. And he's like, no, it's fine. And so he picks him up and like holds him in his arms and his wife walks away. And then he brings TC in the office and it's like he's he's almost about ready to introduce like, you know, Frank, this is my kid kind of thing. But then Frank is like, I'm going to need your focus on this one. And Horn kind of like realizes that Frank is right and he doesn't really say anything. But then he's like, this is my weekend with TC. But I realize lives are on the line. And Frank says, well, maybe if we got away from here, maybe a step back will help you take a step forward. Okay, I guess. I mean, maybe Frank is just tired of working with a guy who's super ranty and on edge. <laughs> Tori probably feels the same way. Tori feels Frank. <laughs> I was not thinking of that. I just thought it was funny. That Again, like, sometimes we project on others. The things it's true. Like. It's true. What's funny to me, though, so um, we're going to get into it, but this next scene is in Seattle. So they drove like three and a half hours to Seattle. Yeah. But I mean, I guess they didn't want to get away, right? They didn't well, get and away. apparently they stay there the whole weekend. So it's not yeah, like they just went so up there like for one day. But yeah, because that yeah. would be, that's a long drive. Like, it's not the end of the world. I've done it. But like, you definitely want, don't want to yeah. be like, I'm going to yeah. drive well, down there in the morning. We assume they drove. They may have just hopped a flight. That's true. That's true. So... I'm assuming Frank didn't drive down to Portland that night. So Yeah, I guess he probably did. I forget that because I just never, the only time I ever fly from Portland to Seattle is if it's like a connecting thing. Yeah. Like I never, I just, every time I go to Portland, I either take the train or I drive. So like the idea of flying to Portland is just doesn't even occur to me because it's yeah, so close, the Amtrak but... that runs right from Portland yeah, the Amtrak. And it's like, it's yeah. like a five hour train. Ride. I've done it before I had a car. I didn't have a car for a long time because I lived in downtown Seattle. I didn't need one. And so like whenever I would go to Portland, I would just take the train. And so I did it a lot like because I would meet people there. Like my mom would come up to Portland and we just meet in Portland or like, you know, I had friends there. So like I would just go there. And I know you went to screen door and until Aaron you were in town. <laughs> that was for the gaming con. And I didn't. I couldn't remember if that was where she worked. And so I didn't want to be like, oh, we're at your work. And then she was like, I don't work there. And then later yeah. I posted photos and she's like, that's where I work. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I should have said something. Yeah. But like, a little I history. Know. Aaron and Tori know each other from some online forums. And yes. then that's how we were Tori both and I connected. In the so, restaurant industry. Yeah. And so we met on a restaurant industry forum. Yeah. Yes. None of us has actually ever met in person. I mean, I know no. my wife. My Which wife is funny because I've person, been to Portland but... a lot, but I'm always there for like, a convention or something specific and so i don't have a ton of free time because i'm usually there like to be on panels or you know i have to there's like a schedule i have to follow and then i leave so like (laughs) i haven't just been to portland for fun in a very long time and then we didn't start the podcast stuff until the pandemic times yeah so i was like i can't go down there and like and now i'm moving really far away (laughs) so that's awesome it's great timing I will be driving through, but I'll have cats in the car. So it's going to, it's not like I can stop and chat really, but yeah. Anyway. (laughs) 
So Frank and Catherine are in bed and Frank is telling her that when Horn is focused, he's a very good asset and a good man. And Catherine's like, well, you should tell Horn that. And Frank just shakes his head and he's like, right now he wouldn't even hear me. And Catherine's like, you're different people at different times. Just because you didn't hear me back then when I told you that like years ago when you were struggling, she doesn't say all that, but that's the implication. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that Horn won't hear him now. And then it's a little later, probably the next day, and Frank is grilling burgers and Jordan and TC are playing. And Catherine asks Horn how he likes his burger. And Horn is just like staring at his son, but he's like off in space. Like his brain is like doing something else. So yeah. Frank finally gets his attention and he's like, oh yeah, medium's fine. Medium's fine, whatever. And the three of them try and talk about the kids playing together. And Horn is like, they have no idea of the things we've seen. And like, I hope I'm not screwing my kid up. Like he's definitely like tortured and he's torturing himself. And Catherine smiles in that, mm, oh boy, here we go kind of way. And Horn goes on about how life became case numbers and he'll end up being nothing in his son's life except a face covered in gray tape. Very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so Frank gives Catherine a little pat on the arm and she gets up and leaves, goes inside. And Frank stands and says in Dostoevsky, there's a passage that says, there's nothing more sad than a life that ends and no one knows or cares. And he pauses and then he says, hair today, gone tomorrow. And Frank says that the killer's angry that his life will go unnoticed, that he'll have left nothing. And that hatred of himself is directed towards the world because it held him back. It objectified him, reduced him, all of us, to barcodes. Or animals in cages controlled by dog catchers. The gray tape makes the victims look how he feels, faceless, a dead letter lost at the post office. He killed before, likely a sex worker. He wanted someone who couldn't refuse him, but he killed her before even engaging in sex. And he was never caught. He feels guilt, and he's angry at a world that should have punished him, but didn't. The murder was the most significant event in his life, so he came back to where it started. He wants to be stopped, but will do everything he can to be significant. Meanwhile, the hamburgers have all burned to hell yeah. because wasn't watching the grill, and the screen is filled with smoke as Frank like opens the barbecue, and clearly the burgers are they're gonna have to order a pizza or something because they're not eating that. So yeah, they yeah, they, yeah, those they're they're more than medium for sure. Maybe they'll yeah. order Pagliacci, which is a very so, good pizza here in Seattle that I'm out was of. Was it the around in 1996? Of. I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. I think so. I'd have to look it up. Yeah. So then we cut and we're actually looking under a microscope. And we see the man at the desk is writing the word nothing on a hair as we fade to plaque. So we're actually getting like the view from inside the microscope, but we can assume that it's the same dude, right? But he's yeah. writing nothing on Oh, yeah. Hair. And then Frank is telling Jordan TC a bedtime story about monkeys. And it involves him making like monkey noises and they laugh. He's all <laughs> kind of thing. And they're laughing. And the two little kids are in bed together. because They're going to sleep in the same bed. And Jordan asks if she can sleep in their bed tonight, meaning Frank and Catherine. And Frank's like, no, you're having a sleepover. And she says, but the monkeys will get me. And then asks, what if I have a bad dream? And then TC kind of mimics her and says, what if I have a bad dream? And Frank says that if they think they'll have a bad dream, then they will. But if they think they have a good dream, then they'll have a good dream too. 
And Jordan asks if he knows about bad dreams. And he says, I know enough about bad dreams to keep them from you and from TC. And then he tells them to say a prayer. And then they're doing like a little, as I lay me down, I sleep, little prayer thing. And then while they're doing it, he whispers like, both your daddies need one. (laughs) Downstairs, Horn is basically having like a therapy session with Catherine. And he's saying like, I used to see murders as an abstract puzzle and could even sometimes feel sympathy for the killers because they had such horrible lives. But now I just see TC's face superimposed on the face of every victim and the killers have just become monsters to me. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, he's obviously going through a lot and probably doesn't have anyone to talk to, which means he's inappropriately just like venting to people who are around him, which maybe is something I have done before. And I think it's natural, but it's also really awkward for everyone else. And like, I think sometimes when you're in that mental state, you don't really think about how awkward it is. You just got all this shit. You got to get off your chest and you're just trying to get it out. But then like everyone around you is like, dude, you need to like not. I I don't know you. Stop talking to me. (laughs) I mean, Catherine is a social worker, apparently. That's true. She has has experience with it. Doesn't mean she wants to hear it in her house from a house guest, but still. Yeah. Well, we don't know. She may have like. She may have prompted the situation. Yeah, she may have. I don't. I mean, I I think if she hadn't, the steam would have still occurred, honestly. But what we get from Horn. But yeah, true. So. So then we see a woman in a nurse's uniform and she's walking past the sign that says St. Joseph's Hospital, Dr. John Grisby. And she's in this parking structure. So as she walks towards her car, she hears something behind her. And then she like turns around and there's this guard and he's flashing a flashlight in her face, asking if she's going to be all right. And it's super creepy because like he's she can't see him because he's got the mm-hmm. light in her yeah. face. And so she's like, oh, yeah, my car's right here. And so I'll, I'll be fine. And so he's like, okay. And he like flicks off the light and turns around. So like, she's like, Ooh, he's gone. So she heads to her car and she kind of looks back. She's you know, obviously worried. It was creepy. Mm-hmm. But as she unlocks her car door, she hears someone calling for help. And there's this orange VW van that's parked and the driver's standing behind it. And he's obviously in distress. So she's like, are you okay? And the man says his glasses fell off when he tried to close the door with his arms full. And he's like, that's okay. I'll find them. So he kind of calms around and she's like hesitating, like, just go home. Don't, don't hesitate. Don't help people. It sounds awful, but like, especially in weird situations, just don't. Anyway, so she goes over to where he is and he's like, oh, thank you. They're probably by the door because that's where I heard them fall, but I can't see them. So she reaches down and she finds them like slightly under the van, just like a little ways, like they had tumbled off his face. And when she stands and turns around, he like hits her. He's, you know, no longer having a problem seeing. And he just slams into her, hits her really hard and knocks her back into the open door of the van. And then he like pulls duct tape over her eyes and he gets in the van with her and he closes the door. And we see that the van has a window sticker that reads human blood supply driver carries no cash. And we continue to hear tape like being ripped off and applied and uh, some tearing and stuff. So yeah, and I wasn't sure if the tearing was clothing or if it was just they were increasing the volume of him tearing the tape. I wasn't sure. Yeah, so I think it's the tape. Yeah. But and I was like, oh, shit, he Ted Bundied her. <laughs> Ladies, you don't need to help random dudes in sketching parking garages. They will be fine. It doesn't matter if their tires flat, if they need a jump. Like, I know that sounds awful, but like if you're alone and it's like creepy, just don't. They, they'll be fine. They, they will find help on their own. He's a grown man. He can find his own goddamn glasses. Just don't. Yeah do it 
don't do yeah. that. Yeah. And then we go to commercial. I do have to say, like, even just from the first thing, like when we saw the first victim and we saw their face was covered in duct tape, that is so horrible. Because yeah. obviously, you know, that's being applied when they're alive. And so they're basically suffocating in addition to being like helpless and blind and can't call out and all that kind of stuff. It's just horrible. So oh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think they're getting a lot of time to suffocate unfortunately though based on this episode it seems like the dude is going right to work on dismembering their bodies while they're still alive oh, anyway so then we're at saint joseph's hospital in portland oregon and again portland doesn't have a saint joseph's hospital or at least it didn't prior to 2016 maybe as late as 2019 i'm not sure at least as far as i can tell technically it still doesn't have a saint joseph's hospital because the current saint joseph's is just a section of one of the Providence hospitals in Portland. In 2016, Providence Health and Services, based in Renton, Washington, and St. Joseph Health, based in Irvine, California, merged to create Providence St. Joseph Health. And it is now headquartered, interestingly enough, in Seattle, Washington. So, yeah. However, as a kid, all illnesses, no matter what they were, there was one cure. That cure was 7-Up, saltine crackers, and two St. Joseph's orange chewable aspirin. So that is how you cured all things when you were a little kid. And George Carlin actually has a small little bit in his album FM and AM that actually talks about St. Joseph's aspirin. And so there's actually going to be a link to that in the show notes too. So yeah, it's kind of nice. I don't think I ever had St. Joseph's aspirin. I did have a lot of seven up when I was sick though, for sure. But yeah, it's currently branded more as like when I was a kid, it was St. Joseph's children's aspirin because it's very low dose. Now it's pretty much branded as like adult low dose aspirin because like 81 milligrams. And so like, you know, for like heart health kind of thing, just kind of take it all the time. But they still do make the chewable version and then they have the normal, like you can swallow them version. So the swallowable version apparently has some super fancy coating. So you don't get that stomach problem that a lot of people get with aspirin. So, yeah. Yeah. So I saw that. I I can't see the word St. Joseph's and not think of when I was a little kid. Anyway. So in the parking structure, Near the support pillar between two parking spots, we see eight labeled chalk outlines shaped roughly like body parts. There's like a head shaped one and like two arm shaped ones and a couple of torso shaped ones and then like some leg shaped ones. Not great. They are clearly not connected to each other. And strangely, there seems to be little or no blood on the ground. Frank says the killer is feeling more confident and Horn asks how he knows and is obviously he's super twitchy, like sweaty and everything. And Frank says that he killed the victim where he left the body. And Horn disagrees. Like, no, like security guards saw nothing. The CSI guys saw no evidence the murder occurred there. And then so Frank kneels down and he puts his flashlight on the ground and it illuminates two small drops of blood on the ground. And he says the blood pattern indicates movement away from, not towards the scene. And so he's like mobile murder station, right? So they figure he probably had a van. He needed room to work. So he like killed the person in the van and then just dumped the body out, which is why there's not a lot of blood on the ground. So, and then Frank finds this broken eyeglass lens, like part of an eyeglass lens. And as he grabs it, he gets flashes the victim's face being taped up with a duct tape. And Horn is like, it's a left lens. And then there's a big old fingerprint on it, slightly bloody. And they figure it's probably the victim's. But Horn figures they should start checking like all the optometrist offices around town. And Frank says that he's way too smart for that. 
he would probably go to the ones one hour places and probably outside of town. So that way he would be unnoticed. And then the CSA guy hands Frank an acetate and they hold it up to one of the shop lamps around this location to light it all up because they're in like a parking structure. So even like during the daytime, not a lot of super light. And on the acetate is a hair. And then Frank whips out that that magnifying glass he's got is a hell of a magnifying glass because it can magnify hair to where you can like totally read like writing on hair. It is an awesome magnifying glass. I want one of those. Anyway, on the acetate is a hair that reads nothing ventured, nothing gained. And Horn gets pissed. He's like, is that it? Is that son of a bitch so bored with our progress? He thinks we're not a challenge. And he just starts ranting. And then we see like there's a bunch of like reporters and stuff like behind some police tape. And Frank is like, if you want him to know that he's got to you, just keep doing what you're doing. Because look, and then Frank says, if the killer wants a challenge, they should give him one. Mm-hmm. Mm. Which is, yeah. What did you is very smart, which we're going to get to right now. That's very Fred Jones, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fred does that a lot. Well, if the ghost wants something, then we should give it to them. And you're <laughs> like, what are you talking about, Fred? So, yeah. So we see a bloody name badge that reads Marjorie R.N., And then we see scissors cutting out an article with the headline nurse found brutally murdered in hospital parking lot. And the paper is titled the Portland Herald. And the subheading of the newspaper is the largest readership in the County. And the killer opens up an album that says memories. And the first page is an article of the mutilated body of a meter maid found. And the second one is postal worker murdered in elevator body found in several pieces. So obviously those are the first two murders we saw. Mm-hmm. And he glues in the new article on the next page. And the date on the paper is Wednesday, August 6th, 1996. So now we know when the murder happens or when the murder was reported. So like we know when this is happening. And he looks down at the clipping and in the article, it says that the killer misspelled the word ventured with like an extra E. So he spelled it V-E-N-T-E-R-E-D. And the article also says that officials believe the murderer to be of lower intelligence. Mm. So the killer pulls out a dictionary, looks up the word venture, and then he yells and throws it across the room. And like, we, we know he spelled it right, but obviously this was planted to Mm -hmm. make him angry. And also make him question whether he did spell it right or not. Right. So, because I mean, he doesn't have it anymore. He's not going to, you know, you Mm -hmm. don't know. Yeah. So then he walks over and he picks up the book and he carefully puts it back in his drawer on his work table. And then he reads something else in the newspaper. It says a candlelight vigil will be held at 8 p.m. Lay in a trap. Yeah. And the Portland Herald is not a real paper. There is a paper called the Portland Press Herald, but it's actually from Portland, Maine. So and it's recently done that weird merge thing where they use the names of both papers in the title once they merge. So it's now actually now called the Portland Press Herald slash Maine Sunday Telegram. <laughs> anyway, Portland has never had a newspaper named the Portland Herald that I could find any. The Oregonian is the main paper in Portland and is actually the oldest continuously published newspaper in the United States on the West Coast. Nice. It was founded as a weekly on December 4th of 1850. Nice. And was published daily since 1861. The Willamette Week and the Portland Mercury are our two main alt-weeklies in Portland. Uh-huh. And then there is a Portland Tribune, which is another weekly. 
that is less alternative and more conservative. Not like in a crazy modern, like conservative way, but more just like old school, like low key conservative, or at least maybe that's what I want you to think. So, yeah. What's weird is that the three clippings have drastically different fonts and layouts and like headline styles. I think they're probably supposed to all be from the same newspaper, but they are all like dramatically different. Mm-hmm. and the way they're set up and then also the largest readership in the county it's like you know what do we mayberry rfd come on i mean no one puts that on their newspaper so <laughs> and then also 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 august 6th of 1996 was a tuesday not a wednesday so sorry oh gotcha i haven't got to do good stuff like this in a long time i'm so happy so <laughs> i haven't gotten any print materials the, X, the, or X, the x files has really been dropping like the dates and times and stuff a lot in their stuff and so i haven't got some nice juicy yeah. stuff to latch on well, they to knew lately, people so. were going to start picking it apart because the internet existed and people probably were picking it <laughs> apart so they're like you know what? we'll just leave it out we don't need it yeah. so then we're at the vigil and we see nurses walking up and putting these little tiny silver crosses along the bottom of a framed photo of marjorie because there's like you know there's like a big wreath with flowers and like candles it's saint joseph's so there's like all like the the catholic candles and all that kind of stuff there and then everyone has these little silver crosses that they're putting like on the, the framed photo of her. And then we get a screen legend that says it's 5.03 a.m. And in a vehicle watching the now empty vigil, all the people are gone, right? It's five in the morning. Horn is like nervously like just destroying this styrofoam cup with his hand, just like, you know, with his thumb, just like tearing it apart. And there's another detective in the vehicle with Frank and Horn. And he radios the security guard because Horn is like, he's not coming. And Frank is like, well, you know, we just need to give him some time. And so they decide to like, like, let's do it now. So there's a, there's been a security guard kind of like watching the vigil. So the other detective radios the security guard and tells them, I think they're like operation drain the weasel. So he's like, the guard's going to go to the bathroom, right? So mm-hmm. like the guard leaves. And then after the guard leaves, someone slowly approaches the vigil and they're coming like from inside the hospital. And then the person kind of like kneels down before the vigil and so then they jump out of the cars and they go grab him, right? And police cars grow up. Horn grabs the dude and like slams his head against the hood of a patrol car. Like obviously slams his head against the hood of a patrol car. Frank grabs him and pulls him off. And then he sees that the guy has a hospital cuff and the guy apologizes. And he's like, I didn't know you were this strict. And then <laughs> he's like, Marjorie was his nurse. And that he wanted to pay respects, but the doctor told him he wouldn't leave his room. So the dude thinks he's busted because, like, he left his hospital room. I know. And- <laughs> God. And he just got his butt kicked. Like, his head slammed into this thing. And yeah. Like, and who knows? What he- and, like, he wasn't allowed to leave his room. So who knows what he was in the hospital for? Like, he- maybe it's, like, a cancer patient or God knows what, right? And then I he know. Beat the crap out of by a cop. And then he's crying. And Frank is like, it's okay. It's all right. It's all right. And so he has a patrolman walk him back to his room. And then he grabs Horn. And they're walking away from the whole car and Horn's like, oh, I thought that was the guy. We all thought it was. And Frank is like, what if it was like bouncing his head off the hood of a patrol car is going to change anything he's done. And Horn tries to pull the like, well, I get so far into the heads of the killers thing. And Frank is like, bitch, I no, like and for real this time, he's like, you're not in his head at all. And Horn is like, don't tell me where I am. And Frank is like, you put them in your head. And Horn is like, I keep reliving being cut into pieces. And Frank is like, this isn't about you. Like, just knock it off. Well, he doesn't say, you know, knock it off. But Frank says it's about all of them. It's about Horn. It's about Frank. It's about the killer. And it's about the victims. 
And then he walks away and he heads over to the vigil. And the vigil's been kind of wrecked a little bit, right? Because like they tackled the guy <laughs> yeah. and then like Horn grabbed him and threw him on top of a car. And so Horn is like, I can't help but take it personally. Another person is going to die because I screwed up. And like you just want to reach to the screen and like punch him in the face. I'm sorry. I know anyway. you really do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's intentional, but woof. Yeah. No, it is. Like, oh man. Anyway, he's going on and on about how they did all this for nothing. They set all this up, and Frank like bends down and he puts on a glove and he's like, "No, we didn't." And he's like, "We handed out 30 pins from the charity to be placed here. There are 31." And he holds one up, and stamped down the length of the cross is the word "ventured," and then we fade to black because it's commercial mm-hmm. and the hospital patient is played by garvin cross who got all better from his like smallpox bee sting and falling off the pole in the x-files season four episode one heron volk i mean so, did he he's in the hospital well he obviously got he wasn't all poxy and dead <laughs> so he got better maybe he wasn't totally dead maybe they found him and drove him to the well, hospital maybe we didn't see that maybe smith as they were walking away was like all Boom, and like laid a hand on him and yeah better. maybe and then they and drove then, him to the hospital in portland for some reason i don't know whatever yeah, from yeah. alberta i mean sure why not you know, yeah. Yeah. it's not like a long drive or anything well they probably like air vacuumed him you know yeah there you go yeah so yeah totally strangely he doesn't look as much maybe it's because the lighting he doesn't look as much like daniel craig in this episode like you know you know it's him but he's not giving off that daniel craig energy that i was getting from Harry. Mm. i'm not sure but anyway. yeah so Frank is watching footage of the memorial service because obviously they know this guy attended. They're trying to figure out mm-hmm. if he's in the crowd. And Horn comes in with a Portland police bulletin featuring the faces of five men from the service. Yes. And then we're going to get into this now and just get it over with. So the bulletin says Portland Police Department, which is a common mistake. Earlier, I had mentioned PPB. And I also said that no one would mention Portland Police Department or Portland PD. So PPB stands for Portland Police Bureau. The term department would never be used internally or externally for that matter by anyone with like local knowledge. Like it's a thing like, like they will literally correct you if you call them a police department because for some reason they are a bureau, not a department. So PPB has some issues. Just a few, just a few. Just a few. I heard Portland was gone. Didn't you guys get wrecked by protesters or something? I thought. Yeah, I mean, they burned us down. Eliminated. Yeah, but you know, we're 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 survivors. We're we're surviving the rubble. I was reading something out there the other day about how there's people like radicalized who really just believe Portland is gone, and I'm like, that is just, it's such a verifiable thing. No. But it just Portland blows my also mind. I kind of I personally rag on Portland a lot because obviously before all the stuff that happened with the George Floyd protest and like our summer of like the police just like hitting people with like baton grenades and tear gas and all this kind of stuff like constantly Portland has always had this like second sibling syndrome in my opinion because they're always like me too me too they're always like coming up with like trends like you know years after other cities well it's funny too because there have been times I've been down in Portland and you guys have a lot of the same stuff. Like it's called the same stuff, like Pioneer Square and like Pioneer there's a Square. Paramount Theater yeah. and stuff like that. And I'm just like, but it's like slightly smaller. And so it just feels like it's yeah. like, see, they're like, oh, Seattle's doing that. We got to do that too. But ours isn't as big. Well, it's also funny <laughs> because like colonizers, right? We talked about this before, like how they're super great at naming things. Portland was almost called Boston. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean we're, we're called portland there was already a portland maine so they still got that from somewhere but we were almost called boston yeah so, so funny yeah. be hilarious boston oregon i'm glad it's i'm glad it's portland yeah. anyway 
I mean, it would probably sound super normal if it had existed. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, it's one of those things where you would, that's just what you would be used to. And the idea of it being called Portland would be weird, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with my adopted city. (laughs) I I like Portland a lot. I think it's a fun place. But again, I always go there for like conventions and stuff. So of course it's fun for me because that's why yeah have you ever been to rose city comic-con did you ever go to one of those no i've never been to the rose city i did oricon a couple times and then i did um gameworks or something but it's like a big board game convention that happens at the red lion also so it's kind of the same place it's the red lion right by um jansen beach or whatever oh okay maybe it's not the one i'm thinking of it's it's over by it's it's very close to Vancouver. So it's like you cross. Oh, over okay. So it's Vancouver. near the Columbia. Okay. Yeah. So it's near, it's near it's, the airport. Okay. Yeah. No, I was thinking of the red line that's near the Lloyd Center, which is actually yeah. near the convention center, which is. Yeah. Where, and so these things are Comic-Con not at the convention happens. center. They're usually at the red line because okay. they're smaller conventions. One's a sci-fi fantasy gotcha. convention. One's a board game convention. Okay. Yeah. So they're kind of on the north end of Portland, which again is why it's harder to like go deep into Portland to do stuff because there's so much traffic. Because you're way, like, yeah, because you're way up. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So yep. like, yeah. Fun times though, man. I miss conventions. <laughs> I miss conventions so much, man. It's been so long, stupid pandemic. So flyers have been left with all the optometrists around and someone reported an orange van driving around the hospital the night of the memorial. And then Horn's phone rings. So he answers and someone from an eyeglass place in Woodburn recognizes one of the men in the flyer. So the flyer thing worked. She saw it. She's like, oh yeah, that guy was in her office. So hooray. And then we're at the shop and the woman is named Janice Sterling. So she points out the man on the flyer as the one she recognizes like the guy in the bottom corner and they're like are you sure it was him and she's like oh yeah he was a total ass all attitude <laughs> he threw a fit about having to take a number and i'm just like anyone who's working customer service knows that guy and they hate that guy so yeah of course you remember that guy because you tell all your friends like after work you're like god there was a jerk today yeah well, and also totally. according to frank's like profile this guy making him take a number Ooh. So, yeah oh yeah. that's true yeah he's gonna yeah. be like i'm not a number i'm a free man So they ask if he had a left lens replaced and she doesn't remember that, but she does remember that he lost it when they couldn't find his glasses at first because she was looking at his order number and back and it turns out they were already up front in one of the trays and the trays are labeled by like customer name. So should be easy enough to find. And he started screaming, I have a name. I have a name. So he had a little bit of a flip out. Yeah. (laughs) So Frank excuses himself in Horn, and outside, Frank tells Horn that he was right. This guy does have prior contact, and Janice is his next victim. So he figures the name and address are fake, and he paid in cash, but they can look for the orange van, and he'll devise a proactive strategy with the Portland PD. Sorry, Nick. (laughs) And he tells Horn to hang in there. They're close. And Janice is played by Lisa Voltaggio. She played Liz Hawley in the X-Files season one, episode 13, Beyond the Sea. She played the girl who was kidnapped. Yeah, she's super familiar. And I actually forgot to put this note in there. I was going to talk about it and I forgot. So I'm glad you did. I couldn't remember what she was from. And when I saw it was from Beyond the Sea, I was like, what? 
I think I was also thinking that she was the detective from Born Again. Oh, but she's not. And so no, I think I was, was but, but yeah. I knew she looked super familiar. Yeah, she so. was the teen girl who was making out in the car, and then she and her boyfriend get kidnapped, and she gets yeah. kidnapped and rescued and is in the hospital. That's yeah, right. and this would be, like, what, two years later, I guess? So, yeah, if not more than that. So, three, yeah, well, I guess yeah. three years. Yeah, three yeah. years later, because Beyond the Sea was season one. Season one, yeah. 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 One of my favorite episodes, by the way. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Frank leaves, and Horn looks at the killer's picture on the flyer, and he looks up. And he sees what looks like the killer walking down the street, like down the sidewalk, kind of in front of Whoa, him. Whoa, coincidence. That is good timing. Yeah. So he looks down at the picture to make sure. But when he looks back up, the guy looks different. He no longer looks like the killer. Oh. And then an orange VW van drives by. So he writes down the license plate. But then another comes around the corner. And then suddenly there are nothing but orange VW vans on the road and parked on the side of the road. And there's just vans everywhere. So fucking Woodburn. Everyone drives orange VW van. <laughs> anyway, no, and, I'm just joking. Yeah, so, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Woodburn is real. It's about 30 miles south by southwest of Portland. It has a population of about 25,000 people, estimated in 2019. And it is actually in Marion County. Clackamas County has a little weird, like little lip that comes out uh, right directly underneath Multnomah County. And then so it's got a little section. And then Marion County is actually right below that. So which is why it's only 30 miles away. But yeah, it is a real place, but it's also 30 miles away. So Yeah, although if this guy was trying to go out of his way to not be in the city to get his classes. Right, it makes sense that he would be there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That would be like driving to like Everett or I don't know, to yeah. commerce. It's just weird because in the next scene, we get that nighttime shot of the Hawthorne Bridge again, the Willamette River and downtown Portland. But it's a slightly different angle, but you can tell it's like from the same like stock footage kind of thing. But then we cut right to inside the supposed woodburn eyeglass shop so we're kind of conflating that like everything is the same place which is kind of weird and they're wiring up a female officer who sort of looks like janice a little bit i mean maybe in the dark she's got like dark hair and it's long but other than that she kind of doesn't look too much like her but i think they're uh, hoping in the dark with the right ponytail the guy won't know the difference he only met her once Mm. yeah (laughs) so Frank figures that given his previous MOs, he'll go for her as she exits the building when she closes because the parking lot is in the rear. So she'll go out the back and then he'll nab her like in the alley. And so they have about 20 minutes before close. So Janice looks super nervous, as you probably would, right? Knowing that like, oh, yeah, there's a serial killer who decided that I'm next. Great. Awesome. So Frank is like, don't worry. Like, you're going to be safe. Like, I will be here. Horn will be here. Detective Jenkins will be here. And Detective Jenkins is the guy that had the radio from the previous scene, from the vigil. So he's there also. And Horn is like, Frank, I'm not sure it's a good idea if I'm here. So way to boost, like, Janice's, like, I know. Awesome. (laughs) I know. Come on, dude. Get it together. Just a little bit. So Frank pulls him aside. And Frank just looks at him. And Horn is kind of doing that thing where he's about to say, like, you know, like, like, I don't know. I just don't, you know, he's, but he doesn't say anything. And then Frank is like, why don't you, you know, why don't you just head home? It's cool. Like head home. I'll let you know how it went. And he opens the front door of the shop and Horn leaves and he gets in his car and he drives away. Honestly, way to possibly blow the whole operation to Horn because like if the dude is outside waiting for her to leave, he's going to see you leaving and may or may not know what you look like. Well, finally, he doesn't know what he looks like in a little bit, but yeah anyway yeah so it's gonna assume they're still open so it could just be a customer leaving but it's not a great right. look anyway so then a little bit time has passed i guess because we see janice changing the store sign from open to close 
And then at a red light, Horn is like totally like white knuckling the steering wheel, right? Like he stopped at the red light and then the light changes to green, but he doesn't move. Uh, maybe he has red, green color blindness. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> so uh, you can be, you know, a cop or a federal agent and have red, green color blindness. So why not? So then the vehicle behind him kind of honks and he looks in his rear view and he sees this orange van. And it also has finally started to rain in Portland, which is nice. So, you know, or at least in Woodburn, fucking Woodburn. Anyway, so there's nothing wrong Woodburn. with Woodburn. I just, I just, I feel like giving Woodburn. Never been to fine. Woodburn, but I'm sure it's, it's fine. It's fine. It's, it's super, it's fine. It's, it's a little small, little, you know, yeah, it's fine. I just, I'm messing with Woodburn. Anyway, so Horn looks in his mirror. He looks back because we kind of like see it in the mirror. And then we see like his face of like, oh, it's the orange van. And then we cut back to him looking and we can actually see the guy that we know is the killer because we've seen him in the previous scene when he attacked the woman in the hospital parking lot. He's in the, he's driving. So we know it's him. So Horn just like gets out of his car and walks to the vehicle behind him. And as he does, we see this blonde woman with her daughter in the passenger seat and she looks freaked out. And like the windows all goes up They're in the SUV. And then they just like, like drive off around the vehicle. She was smart and like left enough room at the stoplight so she could like get around without having to back up. And then Horn's just standing in the road because like obviously he imagined the whole thing again, right? He's seeing stuff. And he looks like a chud and he's just standing there in the rain. Hopefully his wife gets sole custody of TC because he has lost his mind. Anyway, inside the well, shop. I mean, especially after what, yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll get yeah. there. Yeah. So inside the shop, which is called Spectacles, by the way, Janice turns out all the lights and then the detective officer, we're not sure if she's an officer or detective. I don't think they actually specify. We get her name in the credits, but I don't even know that they say her name in the show. Anyway, she is the one who's acting as bait. And so she goes out the back door and then we see the van pulling up in an alley and then the headlights go out as it's like rolling slow through the alley. But in the parking lot, like the officer is like getting in the car and she's like got her little earpiece in and she's like, there's nothing here. And they're like, are you sure? And so she kind of like, you know, it's like, like looking through her purse for a little bit, like she's trying to find her keys. And so Frank eventually has her like pretend that she forgot something so she can come back in and maybe give the guy more time to show up. Right. So. Yeah. So then we're in an alley and there's a car that looks suspiciously like horns and it's in the center of the alley with the door open and horn is crouched by the rear driver's side wheel and the orange van pulls up and stops and the driver's like, hey, I need to get by. And horn gets up and he smiles and he's like, I have a flat. Do you have a jack? Can you help me? And then back outside spectacles, there's still nothing. So the woman posing as Janice has gone back in, come back out, is standing by her car, and it's just like, nothing's happening. So on the radio, Jenkins asked the unmarked cars in the area if they have anything. And one's like, well, yeah, there's a car that's blocking an orange van in an alley. <laughs> it's kind of important. So Frank asks what kind of car, and Jenkins relays the question, and the answer comes back that it's a blue Taurus. So Frank bolts, because he knows what's up. Yeah, I have to wonder, did the dudes in the unmarked cars not know they were looking for an orange van? I know, it's so weird that they wouldn't know. Hey, orange van just rolled up, being blocked. In the, you know, it feels like really important information. I don't know. Anyway, Horn is standing there and he's like asking the driver if he has a jack. And he kind of makes for the side door of the van. And the driver comes out the passenger side to try and stop him. And Horn opens the door and two rolls of duct tape roll out. And inside, the van is full of bloodstains. 
But then Ooh. the driver tackles Horn and he knocks him into the van and Horn recovers and he begins beating the hell out of the guy like in the van, knocks him out of the van. He's just kicking his ass and he is not stopping all that rage that he's been holding, like that pent up rage. It is all coming out on this killer guy. Mm-hmm. So Frank runs up and he's shouting, no, 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 no. And he grabs Horn and like tries to pull him off the killer as the patrol cars roll up and their lights are flashing and we see the killer is unconscious and bloody in the back of the van. So Frank releases horn and he walks away. He's disgusted. Mm-hmm. Yep. So then we're in horn's office and it looks like it's being packed up because there's a bunch of like those boxes, you know, like those file mm-hmm. boxes with stuff in it. And his office is looking very empty and a clean shaven horn is looking at a photo of the killer. Yeah, he had had a beard previously, like a little short trimmed beard kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So Frank stops in and asks how he's doing because he's about to leave for Seattle. So he just wanted to stop by. And Horn, kind of weirdly and regretfully, and maybe almost if he's in a trance, says everything in the van is inadmissible. And Frank tells them that the victim's possessions were found in the killer's residence and hair and fiber, DNA. The DA feels that it's enough so the killer isn't going to get away. So at least there's that. And Horn says he wanted to work with the group and he knows that's over, but he needs Frank to help him. And he asks Frank how he does it, why he does it. And then Frank is lying in bed and we can see Catherine is asleep next to him. And Jordan comes in the room and she crawls into bed and she snuggles up against Frank because she had another bad dream. And he comforts her. And then we fade to black. Yeah. And I know you know, and I know I know, but maybe we should specify. So why is everything in the van inadmissible? Oh, because Horn was in the van. He opened the van without a warrant. And Mm -hmm. also, like, because he beat the guy, like, whatever, that whole thing probably is not admissible because they can't talk about how a police officer beat this dude. Or if they do, the fact that he entered, he didn't technically enter the van, but he, like, basically looked in the van without permission and so and without arresting the guy first and without all that you know yeah so yeah after the fact you can't use that because yeah it's all in evidence Mm -hmm. is why maybe one reason why the joker always goes free because batman just beats crap out of him and then also admissible in court contamination from his blood and from the killer's blood and from the fight yeah Yeah, so just a whole bunch of reasons really Yeah, I'm not. I do not. I have a theory on why he is clean shaven in this scene when he has like, you know, not like a beard beard, but like, you know, like a like a little, you know, trim kind of like, you know, shortish beard rest of the episode um, one, the actor himself and also the way he's acting. He's totally giving off Will Graham vibes just the way the way he looks he's kind of got like a similar look i mean will graham doesn't do like full beard he's got like a, a lot of stubble kind of stuff mm-hmm. in uh manhunter but i don't know what he looks like in red dragon because i haven't seen red dragon so although in red dragon it's ed norton who plays will graham mm-hmm. so i have no idea i haven't seen that anyway but he was kind of getting that but i my theory on why he is clean shaven at the end is that i'm thinking it might be like a reverse henry cavill thing where he was actually working on something else and needed to not have the beard and then they did that i don't know or, or maybe he's getting his life together maybe it's supposed to symbolize the fact that he's like starting yeah. fresh or something yeah it just seems weird that way because it's not like he had like a scraggle beard like it was just like he was unkempt yeah it was like it was like a nicely trimmed short beard right it was like someone you would you know he looked like someone fucking from portland honestly is what he yeah. looked like so they did a good job casting but <laughs> 
yeah, so I'm not sure of the whole clean shaven thing. But anyway, as we mentioned, so Jim Horn is played by James Morrison, which makes me wonder if the whole Jim James thing is actually a Jim Morrison joke because the role was actually written for him specifically by Glenn Morgan and James Wong, which makes me think that it's entirely possible that was like some joke they had about Jim Morrison, James Morrison. And so they wrote it in the episode because they kind of do that a lot. So he had just come off working on Space Above and Beyond with Morgan and Wong and is going to work with them on several other their projects in the future. In this episode, Horn's son's name, TC, is actually a nod to Morrison's character in Space Above and Beyond because he played Lieutenant Colonel Tyrus Cassius TC McQueen. He like becomes a full colonel like halfway through the show, but he's Lieutenant Colonel and then he's Colonel. He will actually be in one episode of The X-Files in season seven. I did not check. I wonder if it's one that the director who directs this episode actually worked on. I didn't, I didn't check that part. Because yeah, the director is going to direct some season seven episodes. He played Bill Buchanan in 64 episodes of 24, which is a show I've never seen. But 64 episodes means he was probably like a relatively major character. And then he played a character named John Morrissey in a show called Hawthorne, which is strangely not about the Portland Bridge that is shown in this episode a lot. Also a very similar name to his own personal name. He was in five episodes of the 2017 Twin Peaks series. And has been in NCIS and Law and Order Special Victims Unit because honestly, who has not? They right. filmed in Vancouver and everyone's in those. As far as I know, this is the only thing I've ever seen him in. But he was super good at playing someone who was completely unlikable. And so, based on the length of his career, I'm assuming that this was acting and not personality. So, good job. He did a good job of playing someone who was really unlikable because they yeah. nailed it. So, Definitely. Yeah. And then this is only a third episode, but it has something I've picked up on is. Lance Henriksen does a very, very good job. Like He is totally believable as the father of a small child in this series. Like, yeah, totally. Like you, you, you feel like when you see the scenes of him and Jordan, you, especially in this episode, because it was like the bad dream stuff. Like you totally just get it. Like, it's just, it's just, he's, he's good at it. It's, he does a good job. So I was reading some stuff about this episode where they talked about how, they think that Horn is a more believable character than Frank Black in this episode, and he's more interesting than Frank Black is in this episode. I don't know about that. I think he's more believable because this article was also talking about how, like, like you mentioned, Tori, with the whole, like, is he psychic? Is he not psychic? Like, Horn is more like the standard that we get in TV of, like, you know, the Will Graham, like, in the head of the killer well, kind of thing. I think Horn but... is almost a parody of that, right? Like, he's trying mm-hmm. to get into the killer's head. And yeah. clearly, he has had some very good success in the past. Like, mm-hmm. he has a good track yeah. record. But it's sort of like a, maybe not a parody, but like a pan on how you can't always be in the killer's head normally. And, like, just because you think like you know what they're thinking not necessarily obviously frank can so i think it's supposed to almost be like a foil for him like frank actually has this ability and like a lot of people probably are very good at hunting killers and figuring out like what's going on as they get more evidence and kind of putting the pieces together and horn was right about some things like yeah, he, he was. was right about the whole like previous contact mm-hmm yeah. But he definitely did not have the clear picture that Frank had. And so I think that's sort of meant to kind of show us how good Frank is in comparison, as well as just having this guy be completely 
just yeah i mean even aside from the visions that frank has and again we've mentioned several times even though we're only three episodes in how chris carter is adamant that frank black does not have psychic powers and yet i mean how can you like he walks into the animal shelter has not even got to the location and he's having these flashes of letters like he had flashes sorry. of letters before he got to portland he was in the diner in seattle with flashes of letters well, that was after he had been together. to portland because he'd already been there right remember he oh went there? right you're right then, okay yeah. i'm sorry i was just thinking seattle has to happen first no it is weird because like he's in seattle jordan has her dream he gets the beeper and then he's in Portland. And then when we come back, he's back in Seattle. So like he was there and then left. Yeah. But even before he gets to the location, he's walking down the, the row of the kennels and he's getting the flashes of the letters. He hasn't even got to the crime scene yet, technically. And so like, you can say all you want, Chris Carter. I'm sorry. Like he wrote the dude as if he has psychic powers. Again, I'm going to gather so, evidence and I'm going to, I'm going to come up with an yeah. argument that so, he is legitimately no. psychic. I um, think the thing was, they, I think if they really wanted to separate this series from the X-Files in the, in, in the beginning. Oh yeah. I think, that's, I think that's where all that comes from is that, no, it's not, it's not, it's not any weird phenomena. It's all real. And it's like, well then don't, uh, anyway so, yeah oh no yeah. i think 100 percent think that's what it is but it's funny because he is very much written like he is having psychic visions mm -hmm. and there's but no he's other. also a much better detective than horn because aside from the visions he is still like doing like detective work right oh and for sure yeah together and yeah so yeah so it's not like it's just like oh i'm a psychic and that's how i have i can do all this stuff it's like he also is a very good detective so totally yeah yeah, whoo, Millennium Group, whoo, they dodged the bullet on that one. Yeah, Ooh. Horn is also kind of like a walking time bomb because clearly he did explode on the killer a little bit, but like that was oh, going to yeah. happen eventually with how pent I mean, up well, he was. Twice he exploded on the poor patient, dude. Yes, yes. And then on a much, yeah. thank goodness, lighter level, but still, yeah. 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 Although I'm sure that guy who got his head bashed into the hood of the car probably doesn't feel doesn't feel like it was like I know and just the fact that he was a he was a patient at the hospital oh my god you know he might have just had surgery maybe he's got stitches that if he moves wrong are gonna break open and now he has to have yeah, them redone. because like for like, some reason he wasn't allowed to leave his room I don't think they're that hardcore in Portland about you know I've never technically been in the hospital I've had surgery but I've never technically been in the hospital like for a stay thank god so I don't know but yeah well I think it depends on like what is going on with you because if you have stuff that you can like move wrong and break open or like yeah or he may yourself. i don't know uh, was he contagious who knows i don't know yeah i mean who but, knows right maybe he yeah. has really bad pneumonia <laughs> you still recover from that smallpox and so hey don't, yeah. don't be leaving your room we don't know if it's all gone so yeah we don't know yeah so, but yeah no so uh what did you think of this episode tori yeah, I thought it was good. I really liked it. I agree that Horn is not like, well, I don't think he's meant to No, be. he's not likable at all. I did so. feel bad for him when his wife shows up with the kid and is just like, oh, you can't, how dare you let her son do that? that. And he's like, I was trying not to. That and like, that is was their relationship. probably his only redeeming quality because that was, it was funny in that uncomfortable funny way of like, you could see yourself being like, that's why I did what I did. Why are you yelling at me? Like, well, and you can just tell, like, that's probably been his whole relationship for the past year or so or whatever, like, before splitting with this woman. Like, clearly they're not getting along. Clearly they're having that kind of mm -hmm. communication. And so, yeah, it was just funny because you can definitely see, like, oh, man, he has been having a rough time because, like, they're just not on the same page in any way. And that's probably making yeah. them both miserable. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it was good though. It was a good mystery. I felt like it was interesting. I liked the, I didn't like the killer, but I thought that like the methodology was weird and it was kind of a weird take on like a serial killer. I like that Horn was right about having prior contact with the victims that he's not just finding random people in parking garages. Although it does kind of seem like he is at first. So I thought that was kind of cool. I think rating wise, I would give this a solid seven. Okay. Yeah, it's good. I don't really have any major complaints. It's not like my favorite thing I've ever seen, but it's good. Okay. I have to say, I have to get past the fact that I did not like Horn because I did not like him. Like that was the main, like the whole episode. I was just like, this guy is one of like, like I said, I want to reach to the screen and just punch him in the face. But like, that's the point. So it's like, okay, like, like, just let that fly. So I actually think I may be going a little heavy on this one to overcompensate for that because that did bother me a lot, but it's supposed to bother me. I'm supposed to not like him. So I am actually going to give this one a, hmm. Actually, I'm going to pull back a little bit. I'm going to give it an eight. I was okay. thinking nine. I was oh, wow, thinking you really nine. Liked it. <laughs> yeah, no, I did. I liked it. I was thinking nine, but I think eight is probably, I think eight is actually where it should be. I think if I went nine, I think that would be exactly what I said I was doing was I was trying to overcompensate to counterbalance my dislike of horn, which gotcha. I get, I think is what you're supposed to do. So yeah, so I think eight. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, it was, it was good. It's a very, this is what we talked about in home, the second episode of season four of X-Files. Cause that's a Glenn Morgan, James Wong episode, right? The first one back from leaving from place above and beyond. This is their first one on millennium. Mm-hmm. This is their wheelhouse. This yeah, kind I think of so. I think so yeah. too. Yeah. Like weird murders and like setting up like all this weird little, little bits and pieces like the dead letter mm-hmm. office and the, you know, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. Yeah. So good job, Glenn Morgan, James Wong. Good job. I'm here's the thing. I've been reading a lot about season four of the X-Files and about Millennium. We joked about this. I'm starting to be like, yeah, I like these guys. I like Glenn Morgan. <laughs> and that's fine. Like it's good, right? <laughs> it's good that you can like. One, I think they probably just like everybody who does something for a long time, you get better, right? You get better mm-hmm. as you go. They're not all going to be winners. You're still going to have one or two, you know, like you're still going to have things you do that you're like, oh, could have done that better or that wasn't as good just for various reasons. And again, TV is a group project, right? So even if, you know, mm-hmm. so oh, you that, is, <laughs> that is something that's definitely going to come up in mm-hmm. season four of the X-Files. Oh, the yeah, 100%. Group, I was the just group doing- dynamic. I was doing notes that, on an episode yeah. today, and that is a huge, huge how part that of can that work and how that cannot work with mm-hmm. the group dynamic stuff. Yeah. So again, it just depends. But yeah, I think they really they knocked this one out of the park. It was a good episode. It was solid. It definitely is their wheelhouse, I think. So hooray. Yeah. yeah. So we have more to come from them, obviously, in this. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, Lots more Morgan and Wong. Yeah. So I also think. <laughs> This is something that I kind of came around and finally like expressed, I think in our Terminus episodes for season three of how sometimes when you latch onto someone that you don't really like, it's because it's the stuff that you see in yourself. And so you're like super critical about it. 
I'm kind of starting to get that vibe with specifically Glenn Morgan, honestly. <laughs> um, so, so maybe the maybe maybe the Morgan brothers and Mr. Sage have more in common than I would care to admit. Oh, so, Nick's growing yeah. as a character. <laughs> oh, it's happening on the Patreon where only some people are going to hear it. <laughs> well, it happened in Terminus. Ha- it did. Know, so. it, it'll, and I think you know, we'll obviously they contribute quite a bit to season four so we'll be talking about them in x-file season four yeah. a lot actually well. not not that not that much they only do like four episodes episode. but they yeah. i mean they're behind the scenes and those episodes they contribute are yeah know, no they are yeah they are they are producers they are the story editors on a lot of those episodes mm-hmm. um season four surprisingly though is also the season they come back and the season they leave and don't come uh-huh. back till either 10 or 11 and so. honestly from what i know just from what i've seen of season four and read about so far i'm not surprised that they leave well, so. oh yeah, well, well, it goes to a little bit of what we were talking about with the group dynamics too. Yeah, there's I a think, lot of, I think there's the group a lot dynamic of, doesn't quite work as well as they hope when they get back. And there's so it a, just there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, their so. thing anymore, but mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So thank God, and probably, for and they probably, and obviously, season four and this are going at obviously as as you're as you're finding out on the Patreon as you're listening, right? We're doing this stuff in order of when things happen. So season four of the X Files and Millennium are running concurrently, right? So, mm-hmm. which is why X Files moved to Sundays, right? That's why, because yeah. Millennium is in the Friday slot. So, I think they were like, you know what, we are more at home here, and so that's yeah. why they. Oh, so. totally. And you know, it's hard to go back and forth to, to, and you know, Chris Carter was doing that too. But like, it's it's definitely tough because that's a lot of work. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. But we'll get to that. There's a lot of stuff I want to say. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut because we're in there again and it's X-Files. So we'll get there when we yeah. get there. So we'll talk about it in the X-Files. Yeah, we will. That's what I mean. It's when we get to those yeah. episodes of the Which X-Files. we assume you're still oh, listening okay. to if you're a Patreon supporter. You we know, would hope like, so. I mean, if you if you, if you you are tired of the X-Files and want to stop listening and just enjoying this, that's totally cool. I'm happy. Good for you. You know, whatever you like. Do what you like. Yeah. We're not going to complain so. about it. But yeah. Yeah. We're just but we do thank you for supporting stuff. us on Patreon. Thank you very we much. do. Thank you so much. It means a lot. And we hope you're enjoying listening to Millennium and all the other bonus content that we have. Yep. Millennium and in search of boom, boom, boom. And our Millennium entire Monday, back catalog of awesome. Search of Wednesdays. Ongoing. Yay. <laughs> Yay. All right. Talk to you. Well, we'll talk to you Wednesday for in search of Wednesday, but we'll talk to you again on Millennium Monday. Bye-bye. Bye. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded in collaboration with Black Cat and Orange Tuxedo Studios. Episode production design and editing is by Lazy End Productions. Our music is Dark Science by David Hillowitz and The Truth is What We Make of It by The Agrarians. Our premium feed is where you can find all of our X-Files adjacent bonus episodes covering television and films that are, you guessed it, X-Files adjacent. If you like these bonus episodes, tell a friend about our Patreon page. We'd love to have them join us. Speaking of which, be sure to join us for the next Millennium Monday and episode four, The Judge. As we try to figure out if If the the truth truth is is still out there. there.
and we see what looks like white twine that's scrolling along the lens with the letter, scrolling along lens with letters on it. What is that? That is Locke scratching the couch, which he's not supposed to do, but they use it as a scratching post and it's a piece of junk oh now. Oh my God. That Thanks. sounds like someone banging on your wall. <laughs> Holy shit. Locke. These are loud. I think it probably sounds louder than it actually is, but yeah. Because when the when the nails pop off the material, it's that, that sound, but like in my ear, that sounds like someone whacking something. So <laughs> yeah. All right. Now he's going to look out the window. So maybe he'll hang out over there for a while. Poor guy. 